I like those words. I've prayed that over the last several years, and again today, as I stand here before you. God has been faithful in answering those prayers. So just a quick testimony. Thank you so much for the prayers that you've offered on Lisa's behalf, on my behalf, and our families over the last few years. It's, the prayers have been incredible and uh, certainly increased our faith and our praises of God. My voice is still a little weak, and I know that Russ will help me with that. Um, it's a known side effect from my current treatments, but I do pray that you'll be able to hear what the Lord has for us today. Will you bow with me in prayer? <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to hear you speak through your word, the God who speaks. Please give each of us ears ready to hear you, a mind that will listen and obey you in faith, and a heart that is open to your words of truth and encouragement. As a church, give us hearts that are offering continuous praise for your overwhelming love, your love that is steadfast and certain, and for your gift to the Holy Spirit to receive your wisdom and your comfort. Please take our sometimes feeble attempts at praises and thanksgiving, and please, dear Lord, magnify them before your throne. We want to make much of your Son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So like I said, today's message is from the book of Hebrews. Um, the book of Hebrews was considered to be a written sermon, so not quite like the New Testament letters that we're used to with the greetings and the personal interplay between um, the, uh, the apostle uh, and, and the church, but a little bit different. Uh, we don't know who the preacher was, but we believe that he was very familiar with a congregation, a local congregation of Jewish Christians. He calls them his friends. Most likely they were living near the city of Rome and uh, probably sometime in the 60s up to 70 AD. The preacher gives a vital message, and it's for today too. He honors Jesus throughout his writings, the author of our salvation, and he describes to them and to us that Jesus is our high priest. He's our advocate before the Father. He's our champion. So this message, of course, rings true today. You sang about it, uh, and you heard in the readings as we started this morning. I have received a good warning and great encouragement from this book. Um, last year at Colonial Harbor at the Retirement Community Chapel, um, David Phillips, Pastor David Bass, and I, or the three Davids, they like to call us, it makes it much easier for them, uh, we worked our way through a verse-by-verse -verse study of Hebrews. It was a great blessing to all of us. It wasn't my turn to speak when we did chapters three and four, but I studied them diligently because they just set the stage for the rest of the letter. And it's really had a great impact on me since as we study in Sunday school and in my personal devotions. If you haven't read the book of Hebrews in a while, let me set the stage for you. Like I said, they're Jewish Christians. They received this letter, probably a small local community. They probably met in a local home and they most likely did that at least weekly. They knew the gospel. They knew the good news of Jesus Christ but they still had some very critical misunderstandings and they were really probably suffering. Um, then they would have the trials and afflictions of everyday life like we have, but add to that the persecutions from both the Roman government and from their neighbors and those around them that were persecuting them because of their Christian faith. So the preacher, who we don't have a name for, let me call him the preacher, um, he started with a much needed truth that we talked about already in today's service. There's an argument for Christ. There's the supremacy of Jesus Christ. 
And that's how the author starts his letter. He said that Jesus Christ is so far supreme above Moses, above any human high priests, even above angels. Why? Well, he said that because Jesus is God's son. Because he's our son and our savior, he is eternally our advocate. He is eternally our our mediator to God. He made the point that Moses and the Jewish high priests, they lived, they served God, and then they died. The angels, they exist to serve God. But Jesus, God's son, rules. He reigns with all the authority of God, all the authority that the Father gave him. And that gives glory to the triune God. And it does it in a way that reveals to us the mercy of the Father and the love that the Father and the Son have for us, even to death on the cross. We know that the Bible says, and, and we believe, that Jesus was raised from the dead. He was resurrected, so now he continues to offer his uh, love to us uh, while he reigns on high. He gave us the Holy Spirit, and he's given us words like, come to me, follow me. This is the good news. This is the gospel. The Hebrews Christians knew that. So as he's writing, he just reminds them of that. And then in the passage that we'll study today, chapter 3, I want you to look with me for two things as I read it. The words of warning, warning against unbelief of poor faith or faithless hearts, hearts that might have been full of grumbling and complaining. So after the words of warning, I also want you to look for the strong words of encouragement. He loved these people. They were his friends. So he was writing and telling them to have faith in Christ, the one who gives us strength. And as we read the third chapter of Hebrews, please look for those two things. Uh, We'll read Hebrews chapter 3, all of the chapter, and then the first verse in chapter 4. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to come before you to study your word, to hear what you have for us. We thank you for the love that you have uh, shown us through your son. We ask that today that you'll give us ears that we can hear, a heart that will be open to you, and a mind that will listen to your word, hear the truth that you've given. We thank you so much that all of this is possible because of your son, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. So, as a preview, before we look at the scripture and then we look at some points that are there, can I ask you a few questions? These are the application questions up front, I suppose. Do any of us have a hardened heart? Do we have ears that are sometimes deaf to God? Are we more concerned with the wisdom of others than the wisdom of God, the word of God? Do we sometimes have an attitude of unbelief, weak faith in our everyday lives? Our lives that too are full of trials and temptations, distractions and afflictions. Are we too ready to complain, to grumble at our circumstances like the Israelites did? And along with that, even when we're around other Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, are we sometimes too self-concerned that we miss to appreciate the deep needs of others that we're here to help with? In chapters three and four, the preacher gives his friends and us both a warning and an encouragement to enter God's rest. In the first verse, the preacher addresses his friends as holy brothers, God-fearing men and women who have heard the gospel of Christ. And now he directs their attention to Christ, leaving behind, because remember, they were Hebrews, they, they were Jewish men and women, leaving behind these misunderstandings, these concerns about Moses, about the Old Covenant, about the Old Testament law, and he reminds them to instead consider Jesus. Jesus is the one. He fulfilled every part of the law and all prophecies about the promised Messiah. He is given, he is everything good. Everything good that came from God before Jesus just pointed to him, simply pointed to him and his earthly work, what he would do here in his ministry, and then of course to his heavenly glory as he accomplished um, God's mercy on the cross. So the preacher wants to give this heartfelt warning first to those that have heard the truth. And maybe this was a small number or maybe he was concerned about more of them. But those that heard the truth, but they still didn't believe in Jesus. They still didn't follow him. So when Jesus said that he is the way, the truth and the life, and no one can go through the Father through him, maybe they didn't fully understand it or maybe they had some hesitations in their faith. After that, in the passage that we read, and other chapters here, he is encouraging those beloved brothers and sisters, those whose faith in Christ is real but weak. They are going through afflictions, they're losing courage from what he says, and from these trials of life, he tells them it's the strength of Christ that would encourage one another, each of them, every day to trust in the Lord and to hold fast in his faith. And then all of that gives what he calls the blessed rest, that God has provided, the Sabbath rest. It's rescue, it's a place of refuge in times of sorrow, times of loss. We may have grief, physical weakness, we may have mental exhaustion and anxiety, 
And even when we spiritually fail, when we're weak in our faith and we continue to sin despite wanting to obey, then he's there for us and he's offering us that blessed rest. Paul shared in his letters, he said, we need the strength of the Lord to overcome our flesh, our sinful nature, struggling to do what's right in God's eyes, but sometimes continuing to fail again and again. In verses 7 through 11, the preacher gives an illustration, and that's when he's talking about the children of Israel. He's telling them the story that they know very well. They would know the story of the escape from Pharaoh in Egypt, the 40 years in the wilderness, and the entering into the promised land since they were children as Jewish families. And they would know that God told Moses in Numbers, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them. They knew about the miracles. Remember the plagues that God uh, struck down in Egypt and he, he used them to convince Pharaoh that he was all powerful and that Pharaoh needed to obey. But more than the the plagues, remember the miracle of the Red Sea, things that that story would have been told to children when they were very young in the families. And even more than the miracles, they have the scripture that says God provided for them. He provided food and he provided water, he provided protection, and he personally led them through that journey. The preacher wants to remind his friends of those things, even though they knew the stories. And remembering that the very beginning of the story is truly a story of redemption. God freed them from slavery. He freed them from the oppressive slavery of Pharaoh. And then he led them away to the freedom and to the, the promise of the land in Canaan. And throughout, God was faithful. He's using that as a great example that we should consider again today. And he uses words like, remember when they complained? Remember when they grumbled against God? Remember how men like Moses and Aaron and Phineas, Phineas was Aaron's grandson. Remember how they stood in the gap. They intervened for the folks on their behalf and they would plead for repentance from the people and they would plead for God's forgiveness. The Hebrews Christians knew about the names Meribah and Massa. They meant quarreling and testing. And then God's punishment of that first generation uh, that would die in the wilderness after 40 years because they did not obey. So when the preacher uses the example, it would bring back all of those stories and they would clearly understand as, as many of us remember from the Old Testament stories. And he wanted to make sure that they knew that God fulfilled his vow with the next generation. Even though the punishment was so strict that they wouldn't make it into the promised land and would all die with Moses in the wilderness, their next generation would be led by Joshua as God took them into the promised land. Is the story familiar to most of us today? the Old Testament story about Moses and the children of Israel? I, I think so. Um, in his commentary, uh, William Lane says that the Jewish people would actually sing Psalm 95. They would use it as their call to worship in the synagogue every week. And then they would remember what happened uh, when the children of Israel did not obey God. The psalm itself starts with the congregation singing like we did today, praising and worshiping God, thanking him magnifying his name. And then in verses 6 through 11 of Psalm 95, the psalmist wrote, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This was their weekly call to worship. They warned each other about the cost of an unbelieving heart, how their ancestors grumbled and complained and the punishment that that followed. So now the preacher says, we have something more, something more than Moses. We have God's only son that he gave to be that savior and to be that advocate before the father. So when he starts the whole sermon, it's not a typical letter, the greeting um, and personal words of encouragement. It's actually this magnificent statement about Christ. So let's make much of Christ today by reading together the first four verses of Hebrew 1. If you have your Bibles open and want to turn to that, I'll give you just a moment. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Christ saved us. God gave us his only son to do that. The triune God, God is worthy of all of our praise. Christ is radiant in the glory of God, and he's our wonderful savior. When he took our sins on himself and he bore our punishment on the cross, he now stands ready to be our advocate, the mediator, the one between God and man when we sin, to say, I paid that price and I am, um, I am the savior for these people whom I love. Hebrews 2, just a few verses, verses 16 through 18, the writer says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He can sympathize with us. He went through the afflictions and the suffering and the temptations yet without sin, but he knows what it's like. He stands ready to be sympathetic to us and help in times of need. Remember propitiation, it's what we mean when we say that Christ offered himself as a gift so that we would not have to bear the wrath of God as punishment. His gift took our place um, for our disobedience. So one one more bit of scripture as we talk and finish the, the points about the first point for today. In his ministry, Jesus said to us in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That was a long introduction. That was a long discussion about Hebrews, but here's the first of the three points for today. There is no rest in man's soul, but in Christ only. 
St. Augustine in his collection of writings called Confessions said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So we need to be clear again this morning. The Bible teaches us there is no salvation except through Christ. Without him, none of us, we have no hope. There's no place of refuge or safety in a, in a dark world. There's no rest without him. Dane Ortland, some of you studied his book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, not too long ago, I think, in your small groups. Dane said at the beginning of the book, he wanted to tell his readers about the heart of Christ because he's writing the book for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty. And as all of us are faced with the spiritual decision at some point in our lives, Jesus says, come to me. His heart is gentle and lowly. It's meek and humble. He's not a demanding savior. He is calling us to him and he's promising us rest. If we stubbornly refuse that to harden our hearts, uh, it will of course be to our everlasting despair. So there's no rest in man's soul in Christ only. He calls us to him in faith. It's a gracious gift. No matter what we do, we can't work our way to heaven. We can't work our way to the Father without Christ. So others have offered an illustration that's okay. They're saying that the faith in Christ, a leap of faith that we take when we accept him as Savior, it's like a skydiver who puts his faith in a parachute before jumping out of the plane. If he jumps to enjoy the thrill of skydiving, if he's does this because it's fun. It's a sport, or maybe it's a person that wants to do this to cross off their bucket list and try it just one time. If he would want to enjoy the thrill without the parachute, of course he would die. So the analogy is simple, and it kind of ends there. Uh, Christ does for us spiritually what we cannot achieve on our own. We can't earn our way to heaven, as I said. We can't do more good works than sinful works. We can't be more obedient on the scale than we are uh, less. So none of those other efforts on our own will, will work. It has to be through Christ. Now, to extend the illustration of a parachute, a parachute uh, as like Christ rescuing us, um, the military has got a little bit different idea about a parachute. For those of you that serve may know this. So pilots, pilots who fly jet aircraft, they have a means to escape if they have mechanical failure, if the... Um, plane will crash, they push an eject button, they're already wearing their parachute, and they're saved. It's a true rescue by the parachute. Think of uh, the movies Top Gun or Maverick, where when the plane is going down, the pilots have something to do to save their lives. Well, it's a little different for paratroopers. The army folks that use a, paratroop, that use a parachute aren't using it every time to escape or, or be rescued. And in my first tour of duty, I was an infantry officer. I served in the 82nd Airborne. And I was told that we paratroopers have been proud of the fact that most of the Air Force considers us fools for jumping out of a perfectly good aircraft. Some of you have heard that. To paratroopers, the, the parachute is not so much a rescue, but it's a tool of combat. It's something that we use to allow a large force of highly trained soldiers to achieve superiority in numbers. We call that mass effect. And surprise, little warning, we call that shock effect. So that 
troop, that the parachute is used so that all those soldiers can overwhelm an enemy force that might be guarding a key airfield, for instance, or think World War II, dropping a large force behind enemy lines. So I hope it's okay to share a parachute story with you today. Uh, we're too ready to share fascinating, exciting jump stories, and they can get lengthy. So I, I'm a little nervous about doing this, but I was encouraged. Pastor Michael um, gave us a fishing illustration just a few weeks ago, so here, here's mine. Um, before, though, and much more importantly, my spiritual leap of faith, it started as a very young boy. Um, <clears throat> Never cried, ever, as an adult, until I got sick. And now sometimes it just hits you out of the blue, so I'm sorry. My spiritual leap of faith was as a very, very young boy. I knelt by my bed with my parents to ask Jesus into my heart. It was at home, and it was following either a Wednesday night or a Sunday night service. And something in that service, something in the words that were said and read, touched my heart with the need for Jesus. My parachute story, my physical leap of faith, that occurred, I was a platoon leader now in my second tour of duty in 3rd Ranger Battalion, and this was a combat jump into Rio Hato Airfield. That was an airfield in Panama. Some of you remember. Remember that in late 1989, in December, the U.S. decided to take action. We needed to remove the president of Panama, we thought, General Manuel Noriega, he had become increasingly dangerous as a dictator. He was suppressing democracy in Panama. He was directing international crimes, including drug trafficking, bribery, and extortion. And then, towards the end of the year, he directed his specially chosen militia group to actually target Americans in Panama. Our nation's leaders gathered. They decided that Noriega had to be removed from office and because of the corrupt leadership of that specially trained militia force called the PDF, they also had to be dismantled as well. So there I was, a young jump master among 800 or so fellow rangers. I was in aircraft number five of 15, flying in formation into Panama, flying very low for paratroopers, 500 feet above the ground, and flying over a defended airfield called Rio Hato. It was a military airfield, and it was transected by the Pan Am Highway. It was an important location. It was defended by that same militia, the PDF militia, and we were told they were waiting for us to attack. An hour before we jumped en route in the planes, the word came out that the mission had been already compromised. Expect heavy resistance from the enemy. So, in this analogy, if you can imagine a blacked-out aircraft representing our sometimes chaotic, chaotic life in the analogy before we know Christ, this was more chaotic than most jumps. We were packed to overflowing. We had 64 Rangers. We had our combat gear, extra ammunition, grenades, parachutes, all of that with backpacks or rucksacks that the loads were almost too, too heavy to even bear to carry them to the plane. So if you can picture those challenges, consider there were sounds of enemy rounds. They were striking the aircraft as soon as we crossed the shoreline. We were told later that enemy rifle fire and enemy machine gun fire reached all of the aircraft, all 15, and anti-aircraft guns actually reached aircraft number five through number 15. So we had a lot going on that was a little bit different than training. My platoon of Rangers, they were cross-loaded uh, throughout all of the aircraft formation 
And our objectives were in the middle of the drop zone, the main gate, and in the end of the drop zone uh, where there was a large weapons cache. So as we were spread out across the lines of jumpers in the aircraft, it was my job then as the senior jump master to jump last. We would have the second half of everything in that part of the drop zone, and we would assemble on the enemy as we landed, gathered other young rangers around us, and attacked those sites. Believe it or not, everything went just as smoothly as we rehearsed and trained so many times before until it didn't. When I thought everyone had gotten out, I had to jump last, both doors, and as I prepared to jump, I took the static line from the Air Force Loadmaster. As I was stepping towards the door, three young rangers came out of the complete darkness that was the front of the aircraft. They had been caught up by their equipment. They had been delayed. So unexpectedly, they came out and they were headed for the door in a hurry. So I controlled their static lines. Remember what a static line is? Have you heard that? It's a, it's a strong nylon cable. It attaches to our parachute so that when we jump, the free fall then pulls the parachute out of the pack and the other end of the parachute is attached inside the airplane. So the static line is incredibly important and you don't want it wrapped around your arm or your head or any other part of your body. So I already had mine. Now I lost my handhold and I was starting to gather the, the uh, static lines of those three young rangers when suddenly everything changed. They got out the door and as I took a step, everything changed. All of a sudden, the aircraft was no longer safe. My pilot took a banking maneuver. It put my door above me, knocked me to the ground. It took those two Air Force jump masters. It threw them to the end of their cables, uh, pretty much beat up and very confused at what was happening. They told me later the pilot thought he was being engaged by surface-to-air missiles and he was taking evasive action at that point. So there I was on my knees, heavy load, a heavy burden. The door was up there and I had no help to get up. We were pretty heavy. So we had the parachutes, we had a suspending tactical gear that had our ammunition, our grenades, or my two radios. It weighed 35 pounds. The rucksacks were probably 80 pounds or more. And at the last minute, my company commander came up as we were loading the aircraft at Fort Benning. And he said, I have six anti-armor mines for you. You need to distribute that for your follow-on mission to block the Pan Am Highway. I took one, I uh, distributed the others. So now my load was very, very heavy. Um, a rucksack on your back is actually dangling below your reserve parachute. So you can imagine the weight is in front and I was pretty heavy. Basically, I, was, I had a lot more weight on me than in me. It certainly outweighed me at that point. I couldn't get up. And here's where the analogy is a little bit closer to our spiritual leap of faith. I had nothing that I could do on my own. I had one thought by the grace of God. Sorry, this is, it's, it's a happy silence that... Uh, that's there, but it's the joy that Christ has been there for me since, uh, since our problems with my weakness and my sickness over the last few years. So again, I apologize for the delays. So weighted down, heavy laden, unable to get up. I was similar to the situation that we find ourselves in this life without Christ. God was with me. I had one focus. I had to get out of the airplane. I thought the aircraft was going down. I didn't just have to get out to lead my soldiers. I had to get out to save my life. 
So what did I do? And Garrett loves the story because of the picture that it gives. Couldn't get up. So on my hands and knees, I crawled up the slope of this slippery floor of the aircraft. I put my hands on the outside of the door, still on my knees, and I dove like a kid, a kid that's learning to dive, and he's on his knees at the edge of the pool trying to dive into the water. I just pulled and dove. God was with us that day. Like most of the rangers, my parachute opened like it should very quickly. I had just a moment to see where the the fire was, the ground fire and the helicopter fire. I knew how far I was away from the enemy. And about that time, 500 feet goes quickly, my feet hit the ground, and the rest of the story was, again, God's providence, protecting the rangers in the mission, protecting me, and we were able to accomplish what we needed to do. Even 30-some years later, we still mourn those that died that day. We still mourn our, our fellow rangers, our fellow fellow brothers in arms. It was an overwhelming success. And for me, it was an absolutely unforgettable moment. It's one where I clearly saw the rescue by God's hands. And for me, it was a sudden life or death situation. Even with a heavy load, even with the aircraft failing me, the parachute provided that means of escape. And that's the analogy that I want us to take away is without Christ, we don't have any hope. The Bible's clear. There's no hope for mankind at all without Christ. And there's no rest, of course, without him. So if we put our faith in him, the one who actually authored our salvation, then we have rest in the life as a Christian. So the invitation is to any of us that have gotten hardened hearts, we haven't made that decision, and that's to accept what he says, to answer his call. He is the way to forgiveness and redemption He is the truth that governs our spiritual lives, drawing us near to him, and he gives us life, the way, the truth, and the life. It's a meaningful and deep relationship with him all the times in this life, and certainly when we need rest from the afflictions or the weakness or the trials that we're going through. He promises that. So there's no rest without him. And the second key point is for Christians. It's what But the writer was saying for his Christian friends that in this life, God promises rest to his own. William Lane, in his book, his commentary, he asks the reader this question. Have there been times in our lives when we feel terribly alone? Even as Christians, even as believers, the pain is too great. The despair is too deep. Others really can't understand what we're facing. He tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, just a few verses, 10 through 18, The Bible tells us that we have a champion who is fighting for us. His faithfulness in ministry, his obedience to the cross, that proves how much he loves us. He's already done that. He's proved his compassion. So because his actions came out of him, out of his heart in love, he saved us. And now he desires to continue to help us in times of need. He wants us to have a closer relationship with him. He wants us to to have comfort from him every day. And he does this as an all-powerful, magnificent savior. So, especially when we need it most, especially when we're downtrodden, especially when we're afflicted. And if in your life you haven't been to that point, it will happen. We know that from the Bible. And if you have, you might be able to testify with me that his strength is there in our weakness. And we can say with the Christians that Jesus was faithful. And we can ask the same questions of those that we love Will all of us be faithful? Hebrews 4, 11 through 16. 
It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What will that look like? What does King David say in his Psalms? Uh, Shelley read from one of the Psalms, but let me remind you in Psalm 55 of the heart of David as he's pouring it out for the salvation of God. Verse one, he says, give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. I love reading the Psalms. It's taught me a language for prayer. It's taught me a language for praise. I've been reading them every morning for the last five or six years. So the words of King David echo a lot of my concerns and then provide the comfort that God has promised. In Psalm 25, if you'd like to turn there, I do want to read with you the first 10 verses. Psalm 25, David says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So do you agree that like David, when we're suffering or discouraged or frustrated or weary, we might think that we've failed Christ. We might think that there are so many times that the sins of our youth or the troubling sins that bother us sometimes day after day They continue to trouble us despite our convictions to do better, to ask for more help. And then our prayers for strength 
We want to continue to ask those, but we feel hopeless. We think that those sins have, have separated the Father and the Son from us. We could be so disappointed that we think that the Savior is disappointed in us. He's not. He is not so disappointed that he would lose patience with us. He won't hold back his love and compassion. In fact, Ortland says that it's just simply not true. Despite what our fleshly hearts tell us, this is not the Savior's heart. His heart is full of perfect love, perfect compassion. Even as loving parents, we can lose patience with our willfully disobedient children. We love them, but we can lose patience with them because we don't have the love that God has for us. Jesus told us that in his heart, his core emotion, what actually is described by him as his heart, the depth of this gentle and lowly heart that he says he has, it's overflowing love. It's who he is. It's, of course, how he loves us, and it's how he cares for us and how he promises that rest. So look at the heart of Jesus if you're discouraged like that at any time in your life. He's not demanding. He's merciful, and he has sympathy for all of us. I mean, after all, he made us, right? And he suffered greatly for us. He knows what we're doing. As the the writer of Hebrews reminds us, he knows our struggles because he went through temptations, yet without sin, he understands how to represent us before the Father and to give us that rest. Remember in the Gospels what he did? What was his ministry that showed his compassion? Think of the healing miracles, individuals being healed by his touch. Think of the casting out of demons for those who were suffering their whole lives. And think of how he raised Lazarus from the dead. He showed us his compassionate care, making payment for our sins on the cross, but he showed us in the individual care that he had for his friends, the disciples, for Mary, for Martha. So look to that Jesus when you feel discouraged. He's the one that provides us with comfort. And he gave us his very Holy Spirit. He gave us the comforter within us when we accept him as Savior. And like he said in the the book, Jesus is our advocate. He's reigning, but he's also representing us before the Father. He's our champion and our protector. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan preacher that Pastor Michael has spoken of, and I think Pastor Ben may have spoken as well, he reminds us in his writings that Christ intercedes for us. He's like an older brother before the Father. He's speaking on our behalf. In Hebrews 12, too, I don't have a slide for this, but the author says that his heart, the heart of Christ, is for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. You might say, well, what joy would that be? Well, it starts with the joy that he would accomplish. He was obeying the Father. His joy is that he was offering himself as the once and forever sacrifice for our sins. He would redeem us, bring us into the family of God. But his joy is also us. When we put our faith in him, we are his joy. We are the ones that he asks us to hold fast, to endure with him, even when our faith is weak, so we can draw confidence from him. That confidence that he gives us, the strength that he gives us. So some of you may have personal testimonies that in the time of weakness, in the time of our most down and despaired state, Christ answered prayers. When we're sorely tested, when we're at wit's end, he sympathized. We did this in Sunday school just a week ago. And, um, and one of our Sunday school members gave a wonderful testimony of, of that situation, how he rescued us. But 
Can you think of those times? Could you testify with us today if we ask of when Christ has been that advocate, that helper? He is calling us near to him and to the throne of grace. He's not discouraged by our weak faith. He actually is inviting us to be stronger in faith because of him, because he loves us. We're almost finished, but I do want to remind you about Pilgrim's Progress. Have you read the the book Pilgrim's Progress sometime in your life? A couple nodding heads. I don't know if all of us have read it, but Christian is the name of the pilgrim. He is resting in a house. The house was built by the Lord of the hill. He's well into his journey. He has come from the city of destruction where he lived and left his family, and he's on his way to the heavenly city. And the interpreter tells him that the comforter will always be with you, good Christian, to guide you in the way that leads to the city. And just a little bit later, in a dream scene while resting in that house, good Christian, he is finding himself in the dream in a room. And in the room, Satan is throwing buckets of water on a fire that represents our heart's faithfulness. It's a fire that's fueled by our faith and our courage. And Christian, while talking to the interpreter in the dream, sees that the fire somehow burns hotter. It gets greater, more strong in times of affliction, even though Satan is throwing these buckets of water against it. And then he stepped into the next room. In the next room, Christian discovers the reason. Christ is behind the wall with oil, and he's adding oil to the base of the fire to keep it burning hot. Christ said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So for Christians, how do we apply this encouraging word to our lives? Let's enter into his rest each day. Well, how do we do that? Do what he said. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. Receive that grace on top of grace by studying his word. So if you don't do it every day, make the time. The more that we know the language of the Bible and the promises that that God has provided, the more we speak the praises in the Psalms, they give us that language of prayer and praise, that language of thanksgiving, and they remind us of how gentle and loving, how welcoming Jesus is, altogether lovely. And as we read today, he's giving us rest. That overflowing of love that he has for us, we should pray every day that that same love fills us to the point where we can love him more. And then, because we want to serve him, that that love that we have would be for others. It would be to one another, you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would let the love show in times of need and prayers, but also in the gifts that God has given us so we could lift up this whole body of believers, this whole church, to glorify God. For me, personally, Psalm 94, verses 17 through 19 They've stood out as a specific prayer. My family and closest friends know how important that was for me just a few years ago. It's also a testimony of praise, so let me share that with you. It's Psalm 94, verses 17 through 19. In 17, it says, If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. There may be different passages in in Psalms that give you uh, assurances and praise that God continues to bring 
to the forefront in your mind when you're concerned, but that has meant so much to me. Uh, Garrett put together some little bracelets and he put some uh, part of that praise on there so we could remind one another to pray for each other uh, in these times of weakness. So as we look to conclude today, take hope in the promise that Jesus has provided us. His promise that he is there to prepare a place for us in heaven. It's a place that will be with him. We won't be at rest like we think of rest when we're tired, but we'll be praising and worshiping him in perfect praise. The holy God, no more afflictions for us, no more sadness, no more discouragement, no more weak faith. We will be praising him in all the perfectness that he has planned for us. And that's the third point. It's just simply the promise that in the next life, we will have perfect rest in Christ for all eternity. The perfect Sabbath rest that he talks about. For those of you that have been joining Pastor Michael's study in the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, think of the images of the saints, the heavenly beings that surround God's throne, praising and worshiping the Father and the Son. Remember, the image of the Son is a conquering lamb that was slain, the lamb that was slain for us and now is reigning forever. He's our King of King, kings, and he's our Lord of lords. So think of those images when you think of the next rest. And the preacher tells those Christians that God's promise of eternal rest is to hold fast now, to endure now, because that's what's waiting for us in heaven. A little bit later on in, in Hebrews chapter 6, he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A sure and steadfast anchor of my soul, my hope. How often have we prayed that in Sunday school? We want to be reminded of the confidence and the promise that we can have in Christ. He is our champion. He loves us more than any human heart can understand. So let's draw nearer to him every day. Let's study his word. Let's give prayers of thanksgiving and supplication for others. And by meditating on his promises, by thinking on his promises, Richard Baxter, another Puritan, in his book, again, uh, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, which you've heard about, he encourages to know Christ through daily spiritual prayer and meditation. So we're going to close today with this exhortation. This is from Richard Baxter. One hour spent in heavenly meditation will more effectually revive you than many hours in bare external duties. A day in these contemplations will bring you more contentment than all the glory and riches of the earth. Be acquainted with God. Your joys will be spiritual, prevalent, and lasting. According to the nature of their blessed object, you will have comfort in life and comfort in death. Let me pray to conclude because I want to give you the encouragement that I received from God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking, for being the God who speaks through your written word that we have today, through the word that you spoke to prophets, and most importantly, as you gave us your son, to see an image of who you are through the words that Christ spoke in his ministry. We thank you for your word. We pray that we will be committed to study your word, to meditate on your promises, and to know that today is the day to commit to you. Thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to transition to Pastor Michael for the rest of the service. Thank you.